Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Yesterday, voters in Zimbabwe had their first chance to cast a ballot in an election that didn't involve Robert Mugabe. Voters turned out at an enthusiastic 70 percent of eligible voters. The opposition MDC alliance, led by Nelson Chamisma, claims that it's ahead in the voting. They say that the ruling ZANU-PF party, led by the current president, Emerson Mnangagwa, is fixing the results with a delay in officials and in, in, in the official results. But the election commission says there's no cheating and it needs time to collect the votes. However, the election sorts itself out. The United States and European countries will face decisions on the sanctions they've had on Zimbabwe. Some go back as long as 18 years. With me is Todd Moss. He's a senior fellow at the Center for Global Development. He's a former deputy assistant secretary of state for Africa and follows Zimbabwe closely. Thanks for joining us, Todd Moss. Great to be with you, Jerome. How much of a factor do you think the sanctions were in creating the atmosphere for uh, a push for a credible election this time around in Zimbabwe? Well, you know, the Zimbabwean government, which had been led by Robert Mugabe since 1980 until he was ousted in a coup by his own generals last November, they they had constantly been pointing to U.S. sanctions as as being an important factor in Zimbabwe, holding the country down. But the reality is that this is not sanctions like we had against South Africa in the apartheid era, which prevented trade and other economic activities. U.S. sanctions were really just targeting uh, a handful of senior political and military leaders who the U.S. believed had been uh, committing gross human rights violations and undermining Zimbabwe's democracy. So there's about 72 people on that list. So it's not, you know, it's not really very important that those 72 people um, are affecting an overall election, but those 72 people are very powerful and they complain a lot. And uh, one of them is the president right now, and so are a bunch of his cabinet people. They're all on the list. That's right. That's right. Um, you know, Emerson Mnangagwa, the incumbent, who had been working side by side with Robert Mugabe since before uh, independence in 1980, he had been Mugabe's security chief. He'd overseen uh, a really horrendous period in the 1980s when more than 20,000 civilians were killed in the southern part of the country. Um, he was involved closely with the intelligence services, which suppressed um, and attacked uh, the opposition when they almost won an election uh, a decade ago. Um, and for those reasons, the president, uh, Monongagua himself, is on the U.S. sanctions list. Um, and he, of course, personally would like to get off that list. Well, it, it, do you, there's European countries that have sanctions on Zimbabwe, too. And there's a range of ideas about when to pull the sanctions off. If uh, it sounds like Britain is on the spectrum of uh, further in the spectrum where they would like to take them off really fast. And the U.S. seems to be taking a real wait and see attitude. Sure. The U.S. is more cautious. Um, I think the U.S. Um, you know, takes a bit of a broader view about what kinds of things we're trying to achieve in Zimbabwe. You know, it's a country that has, you know, it's not on very many Americans' radar. It seems very far away, but it's a country with a, with a, with a long and positive history with the United States that kind of started to fall apart once the Mugabe regime became very dictatorial um, and dangerous. Um, but from the perspective of Zimbabwe now, 
the sanctions are almost irrelevant. The, the big issue for them is the government and uh, Emerson Mnangagwa in particular needs a international certification that this election was free, fair, and credible because he needs legitimacy after coming to power in a coup. And more importantly, he is desperate for cash. He really wants to be able to borrow money again uh, from the West and from Western institutions. And we have told him, um, you know, the U.S. government and others have told him that having a free, fair, and transparent election is absolutely essential before anyone would ever consider uh, lending him any new money. And to give people an idea of where, how, how flat on their back people in Zimbabwe are in the country's finances, they owe a couple billion dollars in arrears to the World Bank right now, and um, they have no real currency after uh, what's That's happened right. in the country. So, so they need to get debt relief in a major way, and there's there's just a long way to go to to sort all this out. But if you want. Um, to pay off two billion dollars in arrears to the World Bank, and you've got no money. It's um, it's a it's a hard, tough scene. That's right. You know, for years the Zimbabweans told um, told Europe and the United States that we'll just you know you 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 guys are happy with you, you want democracy and human rights. Well, we'll just work with the Chinese. We don't need you anymore. Um, well, the Chinese. Um, did invest in some mines in Zimbabwe. They're not just handing over billions of dollars to uh, to a dictatorial regime. Um, and now the Zimbabweans have decided that they do want to borrow again from the West. And in order to do that, they need to come up with several billion dollars, uh, which means they need help. Um, and to get help from the West, you've got to really convince people that, that you're serious about economic reform, you're serious about fixing human rights abuses, and you're serious about restoring democracy. And that's really where, why the election um, that's taking place, that took place yesterday, uh, is so important. Um, unfortunately, I was in Zimbabwe a couple, of week, a couple of weeks ago. I went with several former U.S. diplomats to try to do an assessment about after Mugabe's departure, you know, is there a window of opportunity here in Zimbabwe? Are things getting better? And, you know, we were really hoping, I think, to come away with an optimistic view. Um, but unfortunately, I came away with exactly the opposite, which is that the election is is not a genuine um, is not a genuine uh, exercise in 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 citizen accountability. But it's really about a political regime in bed with the military that's trying to uh, convince the U.S. and others uh, that they're going through this exercise. Um, It was really very, very disheartening. And the events of today where we're seeing a lot of shenanigans in the vote counting are just reinforcing that. I'm talking with Todd Moss, a senior fellow at the Center for Global Development. He's a former Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Africa and was uh, just in Zimbabwe recently, as he said. Um, well, you know what? I think that um, a lot of uh, observers look at the election and say, well, um, they have election observers from the U.S. Uh, in the country for the first time in forever. Are these people going to call out uh, ZANU-PF if they see things that are amiss? Well, we're, we're still going to have to w- see what the observers conclude from the election. I'd say that the U.S. has a very robust observer mission there filled with some very, very capable people. Um, and we should, um, you know, I will certainly be looking to see what they will, um, what, what, what their judgment will be. But what's, I think, an important 
uh, more important point is that elections are not stolen in the way they used to be. It's not that um, it, it's not that the, the the police are beating people on the head um, or they're stuffing ballots, you know, openly like like used to happen maybe ten or twenty years ago. This election, um, if this election is uh, turns out to be uh, stolen, it will have been done weeks ago through efforts like voter suppression, like making it very difficult for urban voters who are much more likely to vote for the opposition, making it very hard for them to register uh, for a whole systematic campaign of subtle intimidation where thugs show up in a village uh, and they're there and they're, they're, they're there reminding people that, um, that they're expected to vote for, um, for Manangagua or else there will be repercussions. And people remember what have happened in past elections, which is if a village voted against the government, um, people's homes were burned down. Uh, in 2008, over 300 people were killed in election violence by the government against uh, supporters of the opposition because they voted in the wrong way. And once you have that system of fear in place, it has, it has a lingering effect. Um, so you've got the intimidation, you've got voter suppression, and then you also have just a lot of games being played with the, the way the votes are being tallied and reported. Um, what, as of this morning, um, you know, the, the vote tallies are normally counted at each voting station, and then the results are posted on a sheet of paper outside the voting um, station. And so any, everyone is supposed to see what were the results from their constituency. Well, in more than 2,000 voting stations, they've refused to post the votes. So that just raises a lot of questions about, um, about w- what's going on in, in those stations where the votes are being hidden. What kind of things were you seeing in Zimbabwe a couple of weeks ago that made you so negative about what was going on? Well, look, just a, a good example of this is, is, is the election. Um, you know, they were saying this is the most uh, transparent election Zimbabwe's ever had, which might actually turn out to be true, but that's a very low bar. Uh, one example is they, they had a new biometric voter roll, which is a positive thing. Um, it's good. In the past, the voter roll was filled with dead people, with duplicates. It was stuffed with uh, people that didn't exist who would magically show up as voters on voting day. So a new, a new system was, uh, was launched. That's very positive. Um, but when uh, interna- international NGOs, when foreign diplomats, when the opposition party says, we would like to see the new voter roll uh, to do some statistical analysis of the data to see if it's accurate. Um, they were really told, no, we don't have to do that. We're going to give it to you at the very last minute. Um, and in the end, the voter roll that was shared was shared very late, uh, and it was full of errors. And the government said, well, it's too late to fix any mistakes. And so that's just an example where they had an opportunity to do the right thing, to be more transparent than, um, than, uh, than they had to be, and they chose not to be, which suggests that they're hiding something. And we found that across, uh, across the economy, where on the surface it looks like it's better, but when you scratch a little bit below the surface, it actually turns out that nothing has changed. Um, and voters, I think, know this. They know that the new regime is the same as the old regime. They know that Mugabe is gone, but it's the very same people around him who destroyed the economy, who repressed them, and who committed these human rights violations. So I, I, I'm not surprised we saw a huge turnout uh, in, in, the, in the election yesterday. 
So in the end, do we, if we get the same result and ZANU-PF wins again, the, the, do the U.S. and Europe just kind of stick with where they're at and everything stays the same? Well, I, you know that's going to be a that's going to be a call for the U.S. government. They're going to have to look at the look at the balance of the evidence, and does it look like you know does it look like the cheating, rigging, voter suppression, and intimidation does that add up to uh, having a, had an effect on the final outcome of the of the uh, election? If that's true. Um, then the U.S. will be falling back into a position of saying, no, we do not accept this as a legitimate, uh, as a legitimate election, and we're not going to change our policies. Um, uh, we'll see how the, how the Europeans and, others, uh, and, the, and, the, and the others fare. Um, I do think what's, what's one really interesting factor in Zimbabwe, and the reason that the opposition, Nelson uh, Chamisa, seems to have done surprisingly well, is just a, a simple matter of demographics. Um, more than uh, half of the voters are under 40 years old. Uh, Nelson Chamisa, the opposition leader, is 40 years old. Emerson Manangagwa, Mugabe's old hand, is 75. Uh, so this is a very stark choice about what kind of Zimbabwe do they want? Do they want to go back to the past, or are they looking you know, to a younger, fresher, uh, more optimistic future. Yeah, it seems like most of the press I saw ridiculed Nelson Chamisa for his idea of a bullet train in Zimbabwe, but that's uh, would probably register as hopeful to a lot of young people. Like we can <laughs> we can do something different. Well, you know, sometimes in the heat of a campaign trail, politicians make big promises. That's uh, I don't think that's unique to Zimbabwe. Um, and uh, you know, Nelson uh, Chamisa is a is a terrific, very inspiring speaker. Um, he's you know he's had ten thousand people you know chanting his name and and cheering for him, um, and it, that atmosphere. Uh, you know, can be very uh, invigorating. Uh, and politicians <laughs> have learned that sometimes they can make promises that maybe are a little detached from reality, but that they reflect the aspirations of the voters. Right. Um, and I think that's, uh, that's what Chamisa was doing, trying to channel all of that energy of the young people of Zimbabwe to get them to come out to vote. Todd Moss is a senior fellow at the Center for Global Development. He's a former Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Africa. And in addition to that, in his spare time, he does write uh, novels, thrillers, about uh, State Department crisis manager Judd Riker. And you did set one of your books in Zimbabwe called Minute Zero. It, it's, it runs a, a lot like what we're seeing in this election, only minus the uranium thriller you put in there. <laughs> <laughs> Well, sometimes, uh, sometimes uh, uh, art, art, uh, you know, art follows truth, and sometimes truth follows art. And I'm not sure what's the, what's the right case in this example. Well, I hope people check out uh, Minute Zero and your other novels about State Department heroes, uh, J- Jake Judd Riker. And uh, thanks a lot for joining us, Todd Moss. Great, thank you, Jerome. Coming up after the break, we're going to be talking about virginity testing in South Asia with Human Rights Watch. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. In 2014, the UN and the World Health Organization condemned the act of virginity testing, claiming it had no scientific validity. 
Yet in some parts of South Asia, it's still a common practice to conduct these examinations on women and girls. Joining us to discuss virginity testing, what it is, why it's a social norm, is Heather Barr. She's a senior researcher of women's rights at Human Rights Watch, and she joins us from Pakistan. And Human Rights Watch has done repeated campaigns on the issue of virginity testing. Thanks for joining us, Heather Barr. Thank you. Can you explain uh, what it is? Because some people may not be familiar with the concept. Okay, so virginity testing is a, a test or an examination that purports to be able to tell someone whether a, a, a specific woman or girl has engaged in sex in the past. This is based on, on an idea which many people believe is true, that every woman is born with a hymen. Um, which is a membrane which covers the entrance to the vagina, and that that membrane, the hymen, remains intact until the first time a woman has sex. Um, and the first time the woman has sex, the, the hymen is broken, um, which, you know, is, is believed to cause bleeding when it happens, and that you can tell whether a woman has had sex or not by examining her vagina to see whether the hymen is intact or not. So that all sounds reasonable enough, except that, as you've already said, it's complete nonsense because not all women are born with a hymen. Some women are born without a hymen. Um, it's complete nonsense because the hymen can break in many different ways um, before, for reasons other than having sex. It can break during sport. It can break, um, you know, because you, you tripped and fell down. It can break for, for all kinds of reasons. Um, and third of all, um, it's nonsense because the hymen doesn't necessarily break during sex. So if a woman has a hymen, it may or may not break the first time she has sex or, or at any point um, while she's having sex. So these examinations are, are completely scientifically meaningless, um, but they're being used in some, some ways which are, are life-changing and sometimes life-threatening for the women who are being forced to undergo them. Can you explain uh, who is doing the testing and how that happens in different places? So these tests are usually being performed by doctors or by other medical pers personnel, such as nurses. Um, they're being used really in, in, in three types of ways. Um, one is as part of a, a criminal justice proceeding. So, for example, in, in some countries like Afghanistan, sex outside of marriage is a crime. In Afghanistan, you can go to prison for five to 15 years if you're found to have had sex with someone that you were not married to. Um, and so when a woman is accused of that particular crime um, in Afghanistan, she's routinely forced to go and have an examination, um, which is supposed to answer this question of, of whether she's a virgin or not. And then the report that's written by the doctor who's performed that examination is admitted as evidence in court. Um, so many of the women who are in prison in Afghanistan today are there because a doctor examined them and said that there was evidence that they had engaged in extramarital sex. Um, so that's a very clear consequence for those women. Um, also, I should say that under the, under the kind of pretense of it being a, a criminal justice matter, the examinations are often used in, in just openly abusive manners. So, for example, Human Rights Watch documented a case where a number of women who were arrested in Egypt during the Arab Spring were forced to undergo virginity examinations, which really seemed to have just been a way for the police to intimidate them and punish them for the fact that they had been protesting against the government. Um, the, the government's 
excuse at the time was they said that you know, these were women of bad character and if they put them in prison, they might claim later to have been raped in prison. So they needed to prove beforehand that they were already not virgins. So so that's the first category is in a kind of criminal justice or, or supposed criminal justice proceeding. The second category is sometimes these examinations are demanded um, in the context of marriage. So when a couple gets married, um, a family sometimes will want the girl or woman to be examined beforehand to find out whether she's a virgin. Um, or sometimes if, um, if the couple have had sex, but the, the sex didn't lead to bleeding, then sometimes families will demand then that she be sent to a doctor and examined to see whether her hymen is intact. Is that common in where exactly? So virginity examinations are used across, unfortunately, a a pretty large stretch of the world. Um, So we've talked about Egypt. We've talked about Afghanistan, Indonesia. In terms of of the marriage testing, where where is it? Is this more honor-based societies? Well, I mean, this is this is common in some countries in the Middle East. It often it also happens in Afghanistan. Um, so yes, it's it's cultures where um, virginity is seen as as sort of an essential qualification for marriage, um, and so there's a demand for these tests and a, and a resistance to accepting the fact that these tests don't actually tell you what you want to know, and that what you want to know whether a, a woman or girl has had sex in the past is not something that you can actually find out from an examination. Now, the third category um, in which these examinations are used is is something we've seen particularly in Indonesia, where they're being used for for reasons that relate to to employment and sometimes even to education. So in Indonesia, since 1965, if you're a woman and you want to join the Indonesian police, part of the, the process that you go through to be screened for whether you're going to be recruited into the police or not is a medical examination. And the medical examination includes what they call a two finger test. Um, and a two finger test is a crude version. I mean, all versions are crude, but a particularly crude version of a virginity examination where a doctor tries to see how many fingers can be inserted into the woman's vagina with the idea that if you can fit two fingers, then she's not a virgin anymore. So this is incredibly abusive and painful um, and also is a bar to employment for based on something that, that's completely bad science. Now, is that being used strictly to keep women out of the armed forces and the police in Indonesia? Because there's also this um, phenomenon of testing girls in school that pops up from time to time in Indonesia. I know activists fight that very hard. Um, but um, the employment thing seems you know, directly aimed at keeping women out. Yes. I mean, so, so you're absolutely right. Um, there have been efforts in various localities in Indonesia to also impose virginity testing requirements in schools. So, for example, there was a city that wanted to say that you couldn't get your high school diploma unless you'd been examined and been found to be a virgin. Um, but these efforts to, to impose virginity examinations in the context of education have, have mostly been defeated when activists have pushed back, I think. I mean, I'm not aware of any examples where that's actually being done at the moment, but that doesn't mean that, um, that, doesn't mean that it doesn't exist somewhere. It's just that my organization isn't aware of, of that at the moment. But these efforts in Indonesia in particular have popped up repeatedly in different parts of the country. How do the armed forces and police get away with this? 
Well, it's a good question. Um, I think for a long time it was it was quite secretive that this was happening. I think that um, I mean my organization I think has really helped bring this issue to light in Indonesia. Um, with research that we first put out in 2014, right around the same time that the World Health Organization was was making it crystal clear finally. It had been clear for a long time, but they really um, made it more clear than it had been before that these tests were medically meaningless and that professionals working in, in health shouldn't be performing them. But I think... Um, you know, I think there probably weren't that many women trying to join the police and the army in Indonesia. Um, I think that those who did want to join, um, you know, obviously were were very eager to do so. And maybe they saw this as a deeply unpleasant but, you know, unavoidable part of the process. Um, you can see where when you've been subjected to such a humiliating examination, you might not be that eager to tell other people about it or to talk about it. And they may not have thought that anyone cared, that anyone was interested or, or would think that this was a problem. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald, and I'm talking with Heather Barr, a senior researcher of women's rights at Human Rights Watch, who's done extensive reports and campaigns on virginity testing. In a few minutes, we're going to talk about some of the cultural stigma around menstruation in this and other countries. Uh, Heather, I want to go back to Afghanistan for a moment. I understand there's been some developments on virginity testing there. You mentioned a lot of women are in prison. 95% of the girls in juvenile detention are there for moral crimes, such as sex before marriage. Um, what What's happening in Afghanistan? And it seems like there's been some progress. There's been a little bit of progress. Um, I, I So what's happened is that the Ministry of Public Health, um, which is the ministry that employs the doctors who are performing these examinations when they're ordered by courts, prosecutors, or police, the Ministry of Public Health has issued a memo telling doctors that they are not permitted to carry out these examinations. So in a system where... Um, you know, the people who worked for the ministry did what the ministry said, that would solve the problem, at least on the on the criminal side. You'd still have to deal with the issue of um, of people seeking these examinations from private doctors um, at the time of a marriage. Um, but the problem is that in Afghanistan, um, the ability of the ministry even to command their own doctors is 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 not particularly effective. So in Afghanistan, government systems are, are really dysfunctional. And there's a lot of there's a lot of resistance to getting rid of this practice because, um, you know, it's people really feel like they need this information and that this information is available um, and that it's relevant to a court case and that um, it's an essential piece of information that you have to obtain um, as part of a, a prosecution in a in a case where someone's accused of sex outside of marriage, so there's a lot of work that needs to be done aside from just issuing a memo to to help the the police, the prosecutors, and the judges who are asking for these examinations and the doctors who are performing them to really understand and accept that this is bad science and that that actually they're being complicit in um, in producing information which. Is, is almost certainly sending some innocent people to prison and may also be letting some, some people who have um, engaged in this behavior go. Now, of course, we're not concerned about um, 
people escaping punishment for sex outside of marriage because we also believe that it's a violation of international law to criminalize consensual sex between adults. But um, but that's a separate issue. So it's a good sign that the ministry, it's a good step that the Ministry of Public Health has issued this, this policy directive. Um, but I'm a bit concerned that um, they may lack the the will to sort of follow through and actually ensure that it's implemented. All right. But what I read seems kind of optimistic. The organization Marie Stopes, the family planning organization, is going to help with funding of the Swedish government, go in and work with doctors and nurses in every healthcare facility in Afghanistan, no matter where it's located. And they are going to um, you know, help them communicate the new policy and talk about what it will and will not fly. And that seems kind of good. No, it's definitely good. It's definitely good. I just um, I just don't want to be too optimistic about it, given the experiences that I've had with seeing um, how how deep the belief is in these examinations and how resistant people can be to change and how little control the ministry in Kabul has over some of the more far-flung parts of the country, including, which of course includes areas that aren't even controlled by the government, um, which are under Taliban control or the control of other insurgent groups. It seems like the international community, the UN, the World Health Organization, Human Rights Watch, they all come at this from the point of view that this is not scientific and not scientifically valid. Um, is the nub of this and why societies reject this is because they um, this is part of their support system to to criminalize sex between adults. Uh, they do not they do not want that to happen in certain circumstances, and they're going to ignore science. And should you just go right after criminalizing sex between adults in in a more forthright way? And and even though that may meet with even more resistance? Um, no, I mean, I think that's I, that, that's an important question. Um, and I think we're trying to do both at once. But I think that there are people who will never accept the argument that, you know, everyone should be allowed to have sex with whoever they want to, but, but who would be willing to accept that they don't want to uh, be sending people to prison based on bad science and inaccurate um, pseudoscientific findings. So I, I think we have to do both things at once, but I think that the, um, the information from scientists is, is very powerful um, and, and difficult to argue against. But, but I want to say one other thing, which is that uh, this is about trying to prevent sex outside of marriage, but, but even more than that, it's about gender inequality. Um, and it's about enforcing patriarchy. And it's about this idea that a woman's body doesn't belong to her, um, that, you know, a, a marriage is a transaction between a father and a husband um, or between a father and a father-in-law in which the, the woman's body is a is a item of property which is handed over. And so this examination is part of ensuring that that item of property is in acceptable condition. So, um, you know, we have to we have to fight against um, prohibitions against sex outside of marriage. We have to fight against bad science, and we also have to fight against patriarchy and gender inequality. Where does this fall in the the fight for women's rights in Afghanistan? Um, one of the 
supporting reasons why the U.S. went to war there was because women don't get to go to school. Women are uh, discriminated against. But this doesn't seem to really come up much in that conversation. Is there um, uh, a kind of a – I don't know why the – is there a blockage here? We don't talk about this. We don't uh, go after it as a policy because um, what? Well, I think it's hard for people to talk about. Um, and it's hard for local activists. It's hard for women's rights activists in a country as conservative as Afghanistan or Egypt or Indonesia um, to to talk about vaginas and hymens and two fingers and invasive examinations. I mean, there are a million other women's rights issues in all of these countries. Um, and so I think it's it's not that surprising that this often isn't at the top of anyone's list of, of things that they want to go out and march in the street about or confront legislators about. Um, but it is important. It's deeply important. It's affecting many more women than we probably realize. I mean, we can count the number of criminal cases. We can count the number of women in prison in Afghanistan for um, for moral crimes, but we can't count the number of women who, you know, on the, the morning after their wedding night were dragged to a doctor and then perhaps faced violence because what the doctor said was, was not um, in their favor. We can't count the number of women who were turned away from the Indonesian army or police or decided never to apply in the first place because they had heard that this was going to be part of the process. So, um, so it is an important issue, and I think that um, you know we have to <laughs> we have to be willing to talk about it, no matter how uncomfortable it is. Heather Barr is a senior researcher of women's rights at Human Rights Watch, and they've done uh, repeated campaigns and reports on the issue of virginity testing. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you so much for inviting me. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about the movement for menstrual equity here and around the world. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Before the break, we were talking about the stigmas that surround virginity testing in Asia. Now we'll turn our attention to stigma that surrounds menstruation here and around the world. One of the stories that caught our eye was from India, where earlier this month, the Indian government scrapped a controversial 12% tax on feminine hygiene products. Activists fought for more than a year against the proposal, and the government lowered the tax in India. The tax rate is on zero now on pads in India. In the U.S. in the last two years, New York, Illinois, Florida, and Connecticut have abolished sales tax on menstrual products. 
Let's talk about the movement for menstrual equity. With me is Molly Hayward. She's co-founder of Cora. It's a company that provides what it calls healthy period care. And for every purchase, they provide pads to girls in need around the globe. Cora also has an editorial arm called Blood and Milk. Its website's mission is to revolutionize women's health content. And uh, it's really an interesting website. And thanks for joining us, Molly Hayward. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, What does menstrual equity mean to you? It's a term that probably a lot of people aren't familiar with. It's it's more than about sales taxes, though. Absolutely. For me, menstrual equity is really about the ability of every woman around the world to experience life in her female body with dignity and agency. And so for most women, uh, you know, that includes access to safe and healthy products that effectively allow her to manage her period and uh, go about her life without hindrance, whether that means going to school or going to work. Um, it's different for every woman around the world, but really it's the ability to um, experience your body without uh, disempowerment. Do you think there is a new conversation going on about that? Absolutely. I mean, especially in the last few years uh, here in the U.S. and around the world, I think that menstruation has come into the public conversation in a in a way that it, it never had before. The stigma um, in this culture and, and in almost every other culture around the world was so deep um, that conversations were not being had among women um, and certainly were not being had in the public forum. And really just in the last few years as a result of uh, you know, instances like Kieran, who's going to be on with us, uh, running the Boston Marathon and free bleeding, um, to uh, then uh, candidate Trump uh, referring to Megyn Kelly as, you know, having blood coming out of her wherever when, when she was sort of questioning him aggressively. Um, you know, it really came to the fore that this was something that is so natural to the female experience and yet has been so stig- stigmatized that women have stopped talking about it. Um, and that was really when the conversation began and women began to say, uh, you know, this is not something that that should be held against us in any way, shape or form. And, you know, we have a right to access products, to access them without additional taxation um, and to be able to, to speak about them publicly without shame. And with us on the line is Kiran Gandhi. She is an electronic music producer and drummer and activist. She's also known by her stage name, name Madame Gandhi. And as uh, Molly was mentioning, in 2015, Kiran made a statement and she ran the London Marathon uh, bleeding freely on her period as a symbolic act to combat stigma around menstruation. Thanks for joining us, Kiran Gandhi. Hi, how are you? Good. Um, can you tell us a little about uh, yourself and how you came to get to that place where you decided, and, and you know, it's the London Marathon, it's the first day of my period, I'm going to run anyway and just just let it go? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I grew up in New York City, um, and even though I, you know, it was it was New York, I think I picked up on taboo and stigma at a young age, and I think I picked up on sort of the misogyny that surrounds it. Um, I think for, you know, in my experience and, and my belief is that a lot of that misogyny that exists here in the Western world is a byproduct of sort of male shaming and disgust of the female body and also sexual accessibility. Like 
when women are bleeding, it's not something that's sexually consumable to the male palate. And I think women are conditioned to be sort of the the object of the male gaze. And I think that's, you know, part of part and parcel with putting on makeup and, and women shaving their legs and all of these conventions sort of go hand in hand. But the problem with menstrual stigma and, and shame and taboo is just as Molly was mentioning is that it prevents us from being, you know, sort of the most dignified in our own bodies. And it, it generates this shame from a young age that is very emotionally and physically debilitating. And I remember... Yeah, go ahead. When you ran the London Marathon, you got a good deal of attention about this. Um, can you describe what happened and what, what the result was? Yeah, absolutely. I remember being on the first day of my cycle, about to run the first marathon of my life. And every day that I had trained when I was on my period, I just would skip out on those three, you know, four or five days and, and not run. And so the day of the, of, of the race, I, I really I really didn't know what I was going to do. I felt like a pad would be uncomfortable. It causes chafing. A tampon wouldn't be the right move for a four-hour run. I didn't want to carry an extra one to change it out. I didn't have a menstrual cup on me at the time. Um, And so I just decided to bleed freely and run. And I really did genuinely feel that that would be the best decision for me in my body at that moment. And I remember knowing that it was radical and knowing that it was not something I had seen anyone do before. And yet I felt it was more badass to do anything. It's like a punk rock move bleeding from anywhere if you run 26 miles. And I knew that there was empowerment in the fact that it was a marathon. Who can shame a marathoner? But and when I crossed the finish line, I just wrote that story for my friends and family. I wrote a blog post about it. But what ended up happening is the story went viral. And in terms of the reaction, many people around the world understood the need for the symbolism of it to actually see blood and and actually see the empowerment of it. And I would say the negative feedback was the deep misogyny of that's so disgusting, which was perfect because that was sort of the point we were trying to show. And also a second sort of school of thought, which was like, oh, that's so unhygienic. But again, that's one. Unfortunately, that's just more masked misogyny because it's not unhygienic you, i just crossed the finish line and did a little laundry like my blood didn't come in contact with anybody else so it's a misnomer uh so how how did that impact your activism and kind of launch you into a this um you know whole menstruation uh, menstrual equity movement that's a great question you know i was in my second year of business school at harvard i had just graduated i thought i was going to go back into the music industry as either an analyst or someone who worked at spotify or youtube but the truth is that throughout my whole life, I had always been so passionate about about feminism, about gender equality. And this had always been more in, in behind closed doors or with my friends and family or, or with um, my classroom and classmates. And so when this story happened, it was very intimidating and it was very intense because I wasn't expecting it. But it did allow me to take my activism from a private sphere to a public sphere and sort of make that choice to go for it. And in the past four years, I've put out a record. I'm working on my next full-length album. I take a lot of the ideas that I get on a stage and talk about when it comes to menstrual equity, but also just general principles of fourth-wave feminism. And I put it into my music because music caters to the emotions and has power for great social change. I'm talking with Kiran Gandhi. She is a musician and activist, and also Molly Hayward, co-founder of Cora. It's a company that provides uh, healthy period care. And I wanted to talk with you, Molly, a little bit about, you know, founding your company and how you got, you you know, you find yourself in the middle of the menstrual equity movement. Uh, What kind of moves were you making uh, just a couple of years ago before when you started this company? 
Yeah. So my interest in this space and and really, I think my own consciousness about menstruation and the female cycle actually started while I was traveling through Kenya. Um, I was working as a volunteer with an organization there that was focused on women's health and girls' education. And so uh, essentially, you know, I was spending time um, with these adolescent girls who were many of them were the first in their families to go to school, walking miles both ways uh, to get to school every single day. And as I started having conversations with them, I came to find out one of them told me, you know, um, when I have my period, I just stay home from school for those days. And that's pretty much what all of the other girls in the village do, too. And it and it just hit me like a lightning bolt. And I, you know, began to think of, about my own experience of my period where though I had never had to go without something like a tampon or a pad during my period, I I knew what that would be like. I, you know, I would be completely um, unable to go about my life. And so I felt this immediate sort of desire to try to make sure that this girl and the other girls in the village could get the products that they need every needed every month. Um, and, you know, as soon as I had that thought, I realized that there were probably millions of girls around the world like these girls, and there were probably millions of women around the world like me who would be willing to give a small amount each month to make sure that every girl has what she needs, because we've all been there where we haven't had what we needed, and it really does derail your life. And so I came back to the U.S. and really started to dig into th this experience and this industry and realized that there was this huge opportunity to uh, provide better, healthier menstrual products. So we launched with organic tampons, which at the time were um, not very common and provided, you know, I think this modern perspective on this experience where we weren't going out and telling women, you know, that we're the best brand to help you hide this experience or, you know, or, or make sure nobody knew knew that it was happening. We came out and said, you know, this is a powerful experience of of womanhood and, you know, it, you deserve to have a way of managing it that honors that and is healthy and safe for you. So um, about two years ago, Cora launched online as a subscription um, and essentially with every monthly supply that we ship to a customer here in the U.S., we provide a month's supply of sustainable sanitary pads to a girl in need uh, through a partner in India. And now we also have national distribution at Target and we give uh, a portion of our profits from all the sales at Target to a partner in Kenya called Zana Africa. How many pads have you managed to distribute in the developing world? So at the end of this year, we will have given 3 million pads to girls in need in India and Kenya. That's good. That's a lot. It's uh, a lot. And um, Kiran Gandhi, you're from a South Asian background as well. Did this uh, rattle around in you the way it did Molly? It did. That story that Molly just told is so, so incredible. That number is amazing. And also Cora's products are so good. I'm a big fan and a user myself. Um, I was going to say, it's interesting because obviously that would be the sort of more obvious narrative, just my connection to growing up in India and understanding how deep the taboo runs there. But if I'm keeping it honest, I think the truth is that just growing up in New York City and some of the most elite spaces and still seeing taboo and still seeing some of the most confident women I know, you know, cower and be awkward um, about talking about that subject in front of their male counterparts was enough to motivate me. And it's like, wow, if we are in some of the most privileged places in the world and we still can't talk about these issues, um, how can we expect it to be any different in places of the most 
impoverished. So while I am very aware of how it was in India and how many women or, or girls are, are asked to sleep outside the home or on the floor or to stay away from the kitchen or to stay out of school um, or they lack access to the products they need and they can't ask for it because it's so uncomfortable to talk about. I think my own motivation was my own backyard and just seeing it, seeing it in, in, in school in, in New York City. So, I mean, nobody ever talks about this in school or at work, right? Mm-hmm, exactly. Period. So to speak. The, um, we're talking about the issue of menstrual equity with Molly Hayward, co-founder of Cora, and Kieran Gandhi. She's an electronic music producer and drummer and activist. Um, Molly, where do you think the menstrual equity movement is going next? Where, where do you think it goes if it, if it um, can, can even be verbalized in, in workplaces and schools? <laughs> sure. I mean, I, so I think there are sort of several components here. Um, and, and really, the issue is very different in different places around the world. But there are some commonalities. So looking at the issue here in the U.S., um, there, there are many women here in the U.S. who still cannot afford to purchase the menstrual products that, that they need. About 25 million women in the U.S. live below the poverty line. And these products are not uh, something that you can purchase with food stamps currently. Um, add to that the, uh, the tax on menstrual products, as you mentioned earlier in the segment. Um, four states have, have ab- abolished the tax. Um, but obviously, we still have quite a long way to go. Um, and and clearly that that completely gender biased tax. I mean, one of the more common um, comparisons is that Viagra, an elective drug, is is not taxed, um, but these essential products for women are. Um, and so I think at the core of the issue here in the U.S. is certainly access and education and awareness and breaking the stigma. But but there is also this economic component that is very real. Um, and so I think, you know, while I'm heartened to see the states and cities that have abolished that tax, um, it's it's more exciting for me to uh, look at. Uh, countries like India, like Canada, who have completely abolished the tax um, mm-hmm. throughout their entire country, and and you know I think that that just speaks volumes to the power of that sort of um, grassroots activism that that uh, can influence policy, and and then I think in a larger sense around the world, it's really more of an issue um, of of education and access, where um, you you know as opposed to just providing products to girls in need, um, also providing them with more robust health education so that they can actually understand what's going on with their bodies and how to um, how to really manage you know manage those changes. Molly Haywood is, so is founder of Cora, co-founder of Cora. It's, it's a company that provides health healthy period care, and I urge you to check out their editorial arm called Blood and Milk. It's very interesting. And also joining us has been Kieran Gandhi, the musician and activist. And we're going to end with a bit of her music. This is the future of female, uh, written and performed by Kieran Gandhi. The future is female, and I'm Jerome McDonald, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.